This is for your own good. Have you ever heard those words? Perhaps from a parent or a spouse or even a child or a friend telling you something that at the time you probably did not want to hear or accept or cherish, but maybe sometime down the road in retrospect you began to realize that their intentions and the content of what was being communicated probably was for your own good after all. When I think of those words, I think particularly about my grandfather. I think of my grandfather in the final period of his life, the final weeks and even final months of his life, when he became somewhat upset that uh, others around him, particularly family, was encouraging him, strongly encouraging him, not to do things that he had spent decades doing. One of those was, was driving for his own sake. He, it was better for his sake and for others' sake that, that he stopped driving at a certain period in the final months uh, of, his, of his life. And this is not something that he took well at all. In fact, I can remember hearing about and even seeing on the way to go visit him, this large brick mailbox that had somehow just collapsed to the ground not too far from his house. And yet he was so bent on continuing in his ways that he went out that same day and looked for and even purchased a car that looked just like the car he had in an effort to keep what had happened from his family and his friends. (laughs) And then sometime after that, really in the final stages of his life, he uh, became somewhat aggravated and resented the fact that uh, family and the local athletic club director at the athletic club that he had been attending every day for years and years, many times, multiple times a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, uh, encouraged him to to give that up. He had had so many falls and mishaps, and he was confined to a wheelchair and could no longer do the weights and the running and the swimming that he had done day after day, year after year, decade after decade. It's as if he believed at moments that the club directors and his own family were conspiring against him. And at one point, I even remember him saying to us, that you guys, as my family, you're, you're keeping me from getting better. You're keeping me in the final days of his life from regaining his health and becoming healthy once again. He, he didn't understand, or wouldn't admit that what was being done was for his own good. The same thing is true of God in the way that He has created us and relates to us. He has created us in His image with all the things that we need and with the proper parameters and guidelines and boundaries done so in such a way for our own good. And I think that we'll see that from Scripture this morning in Genesis chapter 2 that The design of God, the purposes of God, the creation of God, particularly as it relates to to human beings, to men and women, boys and girls, was done in such a way 
as to be for our own good. So as you're turning to the second page, most likely, of your Bible, second page of God's Word, Genesis chapter 2, let's pause and go to God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for these ancient words that we're about to look at. We pray that you would speak to us through them. We have come today in your honor to hear from you. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that your presence would be felt and known in this place as we read and proclaim your words and think about how we might apply them to our own lives, our own walks with you. And it's in Jesus' name I ask and pray these things. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 1, which we looked at last week, was creation part 1. Genesis chapter 2, our text for today, is creation part 2, yet told in very different ways, told emphasizing different things, whereas Genesis chapter 1 emphasizes the sovereign control of God, transcendent God, a God who is in control far above and over all things, all creation. Genesis chapter 2 presents God and emphasizes God's imminence. The personal nature of God is interest, and careful interest, intentional in- interest in those that He has created, specifically in humankind. Whereas Genesis chapter 1 focuses on the six days of creation, it's as if Genesis chapter 2 hones in on day 6 of creation what God made that day, and the importance of what He made and how He made it and, and why He made it, particularly making the crown of His creation that we sung about this morning, humankind. And from God's Word in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, I believe that we will see that God has prepared us with the capacity, the help, and the parameters to faithfully serve Him and to enjoy His provision. God has prepared us with the capacity, help, and parameters to faithfully serve Him and to enjoy His provision. That all of this that He has done, the way that He's created, the things that He's created, the parameters that He's given, are all done so for our own good. Let's look at God's Word together. Beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Scripture reads this way, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now verse 4 really sets the tone for what's about to be shared in this particular chapter, in Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is a, a word and a phrase that's used often throughout Genesis to describe family lineage or genealogy. This is the account of Adam and his family. This is the account of Noah. This is the account of... Uh, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. This is the account of Abraham. So this signals, in, in this particular context, this signals that the author of Genesis, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, is about to tell us what came of the universe, that 
was spoken about in chapter 1. What came of these things that that God created? And then in verses 5 and 6, some details are presented. And these details have been the topic of uh, considerable debate among Christians and interpreters of the Bible. How we're to understand this shrub and these plants, whether or not these things uh, are references to all of all of vegetation, or just particular types of vegetation, or even just vegetation in a particular place that it hasn't come up yet. Because the word for earth and, and scripture here can also be translated land, a particular place, a particular location. But two things are foreshadowed in those verses that will be communicated and be changed in time to come. And the first of these is rain. The rain would eventually come as a result and in a capacity as a result of sin with the flood. And also that that working the ground would become difficult to work. Here also mentioned no one to work the ground would also be a result of sin in days ahead. I don't think Scripture is saying here that rain or or work, or negative things. These are not negative things, but the author is just foreshadowing that something is, is going to take place, that these things are going to be affected drastically in the time ahead by sin. Now, verse 7 is really the key to this particular passage. And in many ways, key for us as people in understanding who we are as human beings created in the image of God. So look at verse 7 with me. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. In verses 4 through 7, particularly in verse 7, I think we see from God's word here that God forms us with the capacity to serve him. God forms us with the capacity to serve him. He's created us, designed us, made us in such a way that we as His creatures, the only creatures made in His image, can faithfully serve Him and live for Him and accomplish the purposes for which He has created us. The language here that God formed a man is language of an artist conveying intentionality and design. When used as a participle in the Old Testament, this word for form describes a potter. Language of God carefully and intentionally molding this first man into existence. An artisan that sculpts things. God can create out of nothing, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or He can form and craft and mold what is already into existence for His purposes. Then He breathes on this man. Breathes the the breath of life into His nostrils. The man became a living being. Now this in-breathing is important for us as we understand who we are as people today. Creatures that are set apart from the rest of creation. The language here, the picture here... Sort of feels like CPR. We're reading this this life, this human body was created and God breathed into it so that it began to, to be a living person. But this is much, 
much more than that. This is far more than just an attempt to get heart and lungs working so that this body begins walking and functioning and breathing. This is the breath of God. What signifies human beings as being created in the image of God. Created with a conscience. Created with spiritual understanding. and Created with moral capacities. We know this because the word for breath here used of God is used of God in Scripture only in connection with people. It's not used in connection with animals. It signifies something different taking place here. That God was carefully crafting together the first man on earth in such a way as to set him apart from the rest of creation. Greater responsibilities created in his image as we saw in chapter 1. God is the giver of life. God is the author of all life. All life owes its existence to Him. This is true of us as well. God is the giver of your life. So let's recognize today that God is the giver of our lives. God is the giver of our lives. The Lord is our maker. We owe our existence to Him. He is the one who creates us. He's the one who forms us. And He is the one who sustains us day after day after day. When Paul was speaking in Greece, the Areopagus, before a council of philosophers who were questioning his religion, This was his response recorded in Acts chapter 17 beginning in verse 24. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. God is the giver of life. As David described earlier, the giver of your life, you alone, you Created in the image of God. God created you and formed you and fashioned you to represent Him. And to have a particular relationship with Him that the rest of creation does not. The Lord creates. The Lord sustains. God forms us with the capacity to serve Him. And that sets the tone for the rest of this chapter. What follows. And we see in the next section, that God requires us to serve and obey Him for our own good. God requires us to serve and to obey Him for our own good. Look back at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 with me. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there He put the man He had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. 
The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The picture here of creation, this garden that God created, placed man in, is a lavish description of abundance. Of God providing everything the first people could possibly want or need giving them far beyond what they need. This garden was somewhere, scholars believe, in what is modern-day Iraq, Fertile Crescent, area of the world, Mesopotamia, because of the description here of the Tigris and the Euphrates and where those rivers come together. This was a place of abundance. This was all given by God. And truth from God's Word is that God gives abundant Provision. God gives abundant provision far beyond what one could need. Lavish description. The Lord God made all kinds of trees out of the ground, verse 9, that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. He put this garden where there was a river that then separated into four more rivers, verse 10. Land was filled with all sorts of precious jewels. A place where there is gold. Gold of that land is good. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know of any gold that's not good. But the gold in the Garden of Eden is good. And this is the place God carefully created and designed just as He intended. And then put the man that He created in that garden, verse 8. This was a paradise. Something beyond what we can even begin to understand or imagine today. When I think of this description, think of the trees and all the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good to eat. I, I think of the tropics and, and particularly I think of Belize only because I've been there a couple of times. I'm sure that other neighboring countries and regions are are very similar, but you go outside and you look around and there's all kinds of fruit trees, just wherever, people's yards, papaya trees and mango trees, avocado trees and coconut trees and all sorts of trees, orange trees that you can just go up to and grab a piece of fruit and have a snack. But in Belize, it's blistering hot. And it's uncomfortably humid day and night. And there are mosquitoes in the grass. And there's these colossal mansions of dirt built in certain places on the ground that house these tremendous communities of ants that will bite you. And it doesn't feel good. And it's not loaded with clean and 
nice looking streams and rivers that you can just go up and take a, a drink of water from. But there are these massive thunderstorms and downpours of rain that just come out of nowhere with lightning and thunder. And Belize is nice. The tropics are nice. But they don't compare to the paradise of the Garden of Eden. You know, Bill Whitley's farm down on 119 has a nice garden. A lavish garden. A good-looking garden. One of the best gardens that I've ever seen. But as beautiful as that is, it does not compare to the paradise of the Garden of Eden. This was a garden that God planted. Provided everything that one could need and then placed the first man in it. God gives abundant provision. And then we also see here that God requires obedient service. God gives abundant provision and then God requires obedient service. The description here, verse 15, is the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it or to keep it, to serve in it, and to care for it. To care for it, to serve in it, to keep it, to watch over it. The picture here is that Adam was a garden, a gardener, and the guardian of this magnificent paradise. He was a supervisor of sorts over what took place there day in and day out. We learn here that from this passage that work was not simply a result of sin. Work is a good thing, a positive thing, something that God designed in the beginning for the first human beings, which is drastically affected by the fall. became much more difficult, became a painful endeavor as a result of the fall. And the words that are used here for Adam as he works in the garden are words that are also used of priests throughout the Old Testament to describe spiritual service, describing that what Adam was called to do in the garden was were acts of spiritual service to God, acts of devotion to God, acts of serving the Lord, acts of worshiping the Lord, what he was designed to do, what he was created to do, and all his needs were provided for, everything that he could possibly need. Yet God gave one prohibition, one command. Verse 16, he said, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is not God depriving the first people of something they need. They've got everything they can need. And yet God gives, gives one prohibition, one command, ultimately, to give them an opportunity to express full devotion and loyalty to Him. As one commentator has written, freedom has no meaning without prohibition. Freedom has no meaning without prohibition. Given everything they could need, ultimately, so that they could show and express their loyalty to God, their faithfulness to God, their worship of God, by following what He had asked of them. And if they didn't, then they would experience death. Not just physical death or annihilation, but spiritual separation, alienation from a right relationship with their maker. A truth and a point that 
sets the groundwork for the rest of Scripture, the rest of God's Word, the rest of the Gospel story, a truth that we must understand to understand the Gospel. The greatest good or the greatest satisfaction, the greatest delight, the greatest joy for us and for all mankind, all people, is to worship and to rightly worship our Creator. There are many good and satisfying things in the world from entertainment, relationships, physical intimacy, to materialism, to success, to popularity, to friends, many good things, but none of these compare to the satisfaction and the delight and the joy of rightly worshiping our Maker, of knowing Him and giving Him what He is due. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And to glorify Him is to worship Him, to exalt Him, to be devoted to Him, to give Him what is due Him. And as we do that, as we understand who He is and who we are in light of who He is, then then we will be enjoying Him. Lead to our enjoyment. This is what God intended. This is what God still intends for us. That we might be devoted to Him. We might express full devotion, commitment, love and service and worship of Him. God has provided all the things necessary for us to do that. God still provides for us today. Even though we live post-fall. Even though we're not in the Garden of Eden today. God has still formed us and prepared us with the capacity to serve Him, capacity to know Him, capacity to enjoy His provision. He provides for us physically, taking care of our needs. We know many of us, all of us, most likely, have far more than most of the rest of the world. God deserves thanks for what He's given us. But God doesn't just provide for us physically. He also provides for us spiritually as well. Even in the wake of sin, the ramifications of the first sin, and our inherited sin nature, and our subsequent giving in to sin day after day, turning against God, God still provides for us spiritually while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Not only does He provide for us in salvation, but God provides for us in transformation as well. All those that know Christ, that have turned to Christ for forgiveness of sins, right relationship with God, reconciliation with God, have become a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God provides for us abundantly, physically and spiritually. And so, in light of that truth, we ought to thank God for His provisions and parameters. Thank God for His provisions, for what He has given us, and for His parameters, for His guidelines, for His boundaries that help us, give us opportunity to know Him more and to express greater love for Him. He has given us the provision of His Word, telling us how, showing us how, communicating to us how that we might fully know Him and live for Him and serve Him. 
for our own good. God has prepared us with the capacity and God has prepared us with the parameters to faithfully serve Him and to enjoy His provision. And then the final verse of the final section of Genesis chapter 2, we see that God provides us with complementary help to serve and obey Him. God provides us with complementary help, once again, for our own good, to serve and to obey Him. So look with me back at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. We'll conclude the text here. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the first time in the creation account that God describes anything as not good. Over and over prior to this, He created and it was good. He created and it was all very good. Here, Verse 18, the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. Because God has created us, designed us to live not only in relationship with Him, in fellowship with Him, but also in fellowship with others. Fellowship with other people. God has created us for community. God creates us for community. Intimacy, friendship, fellowship, or basic needs of of human beings, all reflective of the nature of God, by the way, who has all perfectly within Himself as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He has created us also to be in community. And Scripture teaches that fullness of life is found in community. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if we lie down together, they will, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. God has created us for community. The word here used in Scripture, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and again in verse 20, to describe this, this partner, helper, is not a negative word. This is a positive word. Describing one who can do something that cannot otherwise be done. Describing an aspect of completion, a word that is most often, when it's used in the Old Testament, used of God. Where Moses said in Exodus chapter 18 that the God of my fathers was my helper. When he delivered me from Pharaoh in Egypt. Psalm 46 verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. An ever present help. In trouble. In the context of Genesis chapter 2. Describing. One that can do something. For this man. That this man cannot do on his own. Cannot do in and of himself. 
There's no suitable helper found. Suitable, a word that communicates corresponding counterpart. Like matching socks or cufflinks or shoes that go together. Notice the careful planning of God once again. He gives Adam responsibility to name all the other creatures, all the animals. And he brings those to Adam so that Adam will realize after he's named all of these animals that there's no one like him. There's no equivalent. There's, there's no other human. Adam looking for a human counterpart and realizes that it's not there. And then after all of this, he creates the woman, brings her to the man so that he will be overjoyed when he finally sees his counterpart. Description. Creating this woman out of this man. Carefully crafting. Carefully molding. Like a builder forming her from his side. Many have used to communicate that God creates man and woman in the context of marriage to, to complete each other. To meet basic needs of each other to express mutual care and love and concern and protection for each other. God has created us for community. And the most intimate human community that any of us as people on this earth can have is in marriage. And God has intended marriage for our good. God intends marriage for our good. Carefully creating this woman just as He did the man so as to communicate that she just as much so designed in the way that God intended and created in the image of God, carefully created, each of them expressing great love and concern for them. And as Christians gathered today in this place looking at this particular passage of Scripture, we could spend lots of time talking about implications for marriage based on Genesis chapter 2. We don't have time to do that this morning, but we are going to look at, at a few. Because there's no greater instruction book for God's intentions, for relationships, for human relationships, even for marriage, than this book, the Word of God. The Bible is not a detailed marriage manual, but it does provide the proper foundation, God's foundation for marriage relationships, Expresses his design. So what does the Bible say about marriage? And firstly, let's look to God's word for instructions on marriage. Let's look to God's words for instruction on marriage. We want to know what God has to say about marriage. After all, this is the passage. These are the verses that Jesus went to when he was asked about marriage and divorce. Rooted his answer in Genesis chapter 2. So what does this brief text about the creation of man and creation of woman, and the words that follow, teach us about marriage. Well, firstly, there, there's no greater reason for marriage, according to Scripture, than for two people to be spiritual servants of God together. To come alongside each other, to complete each other as they pursue the Lord. Desire to honor the Lord. Once again, created for our good. This was God's design. Idea of one flesh. One life coming together, physical union, physical union here, really just symbolic of the bigger picture. Two lives merging together, complete lives coming together as one to pursue the Lord together, to serve the Lord together, to challenge each other, to be faithful to the Lord together. 
What else does scripture teach up here about God's design for marriage? From the beginning, God's design, God's intent was for heterosexual monogamous marriage. Heterosexual monogamous marriage. One man completing one woman. One man able to do for one woman what he cannot do on his own and vice versa. God created man to complete woman and woman to complete man. Part of, part of Adam's instructions, part of God's instructions to the first human couple was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and for reasons that we're not going to go into this morning. The man could not do that alone and so God created Completion, a helper, a woman to be what the man could not do. How is his marriage described here? Is leaving, leaving father and mother, expressing a new priority. The commitment to one spouse is greater than a commitment to previous family or parents. Uniting together, two lives merging together, two new lives merging together as a new family change in priorities and a public declaration before others of the commitment that has been made in marriage. Leaving, uniting, and declaration. Folks, God has prepared us intentionally, purposefully, carefully with the capacity, with the help, and with the parameters to faithfully serve Him and to enjoy His provision. And though we don't live in the garden, Though we deal with sin and the effects of sin, God still provides for us in these ways. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the crucified Jesus in our place is a death on the cross in our place so that we might be forgiven and declared right before God. And then was raised from the dead three days later. That Jesus appeared to his followers as recorded in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. And he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you've repented of your sin, turned to Christ, embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, given your life to follow him, then God's Spirit has been placed in you Enabling you to to know God, to follow God, to obey God, to live for God each day. And no, we don't live in a paradise on this earth. Implications and ramifications of sin all around us every single day. God is recreating a paradise for us as His people, for us to enjoy his provision and His presence for all of eternity. Revelation chapter 21. And this is where we'll conclude this morning. Beginning in verse 15. The angel, this is John, the disciple, writing about the vision that God showed him of this new creation. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, I think that's how you say that, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx. 
the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And get this, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what, who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Folks, if you know Christ, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, though you've sinned, if, if... Embrace the message of the gospel, turning to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation before God and restoration of a right relationship with God. Then God is preparing for you a new paradise where you will forever enjoy the abundant provision of God and the glorious presence of God. There is no greater joy and satisfaction and delight than that. God is a good God who has created and designed us and is still creating and redeeming and sustaining and designing His creation for our good. And he deserves our great thanks and praise today. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for your creation. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. But I pray that your word would continue to be on our hearts and minds as we seek to to be your people, to be faithful servants of you. Thank you for, for creating and designing us in such a way that we might faithfully serve you and enjoy your provision. Lord, remind us of your great provision today. Draw us close to you that we might be faithful fathers of Jesus Christ for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.